Wow, this has been a long week. I don't know about, you ever have one of those weeks that you're just like, at the end of the week, you're just totally, I'm worn out this morning, okay? I'll just be honest with you. Uh, so if I feel a little, I'm a little groggy and I feel saying something incoherent, just understand. Uh, it's been one of those weeks. Spent uh, the first three days at Miracle Camp with FEC pastors uh, talking about the direction of our denomination. Then Thursday all day, we left here, all of our staff went up to Chicago, left here at 5 a.m. in the morning and then uh, drove Chicago for a conference on teaching and preaching and uh, got back here about 8 o'clock that night. So uh, I was in the office one day this week, you know, so that was when I worked on the sermon one day, which is not as much as I usually do. And then Fridays are always a special day for us. We uh, take care of our grandkids, our two grandkids. And so, uh, boy, I'm always energized when I finish with that. Not okay. Love them, but boy, do I'm you know I love it uh, when uh, four o'clock gets there too. Sometimes, so uh, just to be honest with you, uh, I, I understand now why you have kids when you're younger and have energy, uh, because uh, well they take a lot of energy. A one year old and a three year old. So anyway, little boys. Okay, <laughs> why did I say that? I don't know. Um, this morning we're in chapter four of this story. We began a few weeks ago talking about uh, a book called The Story. The Story is not the Bible. The Story is a book that is a uh, abridged chronological version of the Bible. It's probably 70% or something of the actual scripture. Uh, the reason we're using that is because it helps us to see the Bible as a whole. Because most of the times when we read scripture, uh, we don't always understand it because it's not really written in a, such a way that we read from, from page one to the end like you normally do a book. And so the, the story actually helps us to kind of read it that way and understand it that way in the big picture and the chronological process. And so hopefully over the next uh, several weeks as we continue this process of studying uh, the story that uh, you'll understand how Scripture fits together, how the Old Testament is, ju- is, is vital for us to understand the New Testament and how God, that's part of God's plan. We're not just, yeah, the New Testament is the stuff that when Jesus was here and that's the, that's the highlight, that's the high point of Scripture, but it's not, the Old Testament's important to understand too. And so as we study through this for several weeks, uh, we'll be looking at that. Now, already, we've already realized a couple of things. One is that God has a plan and a purpose. He has an upper story, uh, the, the big purpose, and he has a lower story. The lower story is the stuff that happens every day and to everyday people. It's the stuff in the first week we talked about with Adam and Eve and how they, in a real sense, what they did is uh, God you know, created them and he gave them the option of actually living in perfect bliss. Uh, you know, but they chose, because God gave them the option of doing this, to, to choose to go their own way, which they did. And it caused some problems for us and for them and for everything. And then last, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how God chose to build a nation. And he chose to build a nation from a guy, and he started off with a couple that totally is not who we would choose, uh, infertile, elderly couple. And uh, he chose them, and, uh, his, and Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham and Sarah and how as they went through life and God, you know, they, they did their best. They were people of faith, but they weren't perfect people by any means. But God chose to use them to start to populate a nation. Then last week we talked about um, this whole thing of, of, of a guy named Joseph. And Joseph was this guy that I get confused because let me tell you, uh, studying uh, yesterday I had a small group. You know what we talked about yesterday? Last week. And today I'm talking about this week. I think I'm right. Okay, now I know where we are this week. Okay. But Joseph last week, and Joseph was a guy who God used in a, in a miraculous way to kind of help the nation along. The problem was is that Joseph, 
spent a whole bunch of his early years as, in a, as a slave or in prison. But God rose him up, and God had an upper story going on, and so we learned that way. Now, today we talk about probably one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. I'll tell you a fact. Every time I think about the story we're talking about today, I think about one movie. I think about one guy in that one movie. You know, and uh, and I can't, you know, I went and rented the movie this week uh, because I'm going like, I haven't watched it yet. I thought I was going to have time to watch it. I haven't watched it yet. But you know what I'm talking about today? We're talking about Moses. Moses, about how God delivers a nation, about how some things that had gone on. And so actually this chapter 4 of the story today actually comes basically out of the book of Exodus. Now, I'm not going to assume anything that you know anything about Scripture because I know you all come from different backgrounds. But the issue is, is that Scripture is not like any other. This is not like any other book, right? This is not just a book. This is this is a a, a, a bunch of ancient documents that have been brought together to reveal to us how God works and how God has worked throughout history. And so that's what the Bible is. But the second book in that in the Bible is called Exodus. And uh, it's after Genesis. And Genesis and Exodus comes along. And so we'll be looking at Exodus today. So either if you've got a Bible, which I encourage you to bring each week, and if you don't have one, we have extra ones back there, or you can pick up one that you can keep brand new back in the Welcome Center. Uh, or if you brought the storybook, you're in chapter 4 today, we'll be looking at that because you'll need it today because I'm just going to basically open Scripture and we're going to talk through this story. Now, the story, uh, as I shared with you, uh, when I think about it, uh, is kind of interesting because uh, I always think about Cecil B. DeMille film, 1956, called what? The Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. Story of Moses. You know, it's, it's an epic. It's considered one of the top 100 films of all times. How many of you have seen the Ten Commandments? That version I'm talking about. Oh, most of you have. I found it interesting. Uh, on the way back from our, our um, uh, trip on Thursday, that one or two of our staff had never seen that movie before. They said, oh, you mean the animated version? <laughs> no, no, not the animated version. <laughs> no, I'm talking about the real one, you know. <laughs> Cecil Bill DeMille. Charlton Heston. I mean, that's Moses, right? Yul Brenner is the evil, is the evil, you know, uh, Ramses or whatever his name is. Actually, it's a different name. But he's the, he's the evil Pharaoh. You know, I mean, I, when I see the, read scripture, I always see Moses and I see Charlton Heston in my head. I can't get it out. But actually, I began to realize as I was reading the story again in the story, and that movie actually is fairly accurate. There's a few things that they took out. So if you want to know kind of, kind of what happened and you haven't, you know, not really a great reader, go rent the 1956 edition. You can. I found out recently locally in some of the movie places or probably if you have whatever your thing is, you can probably rent it online or, you know, stream it or whatever you do with it. I don't know. But uh, that's kind of the deal. But when I think of it, I think of that. And, you know, and, and I'm reminded once again, when we begin to look at the life of Moses as we look today, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, I'm re- it reveals to me that something about God, God doesn't use who we normally think he would use. And it reminds me of a verse in Isaiah 55, 8 that says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. God, you know, thank goodness God does not do things the way we think we, he should do them. Because if he did, we'd be kind of messed up. But God decides to showcase his power through the weakness of a man. And he does it through this week as we talk about a man named Moses. Now, if you know the story of Moses, you know that he was fortunate to be alive. Because uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 2. Uh, the birth of Moses, there we see Moses is born in a time where 
the nation has risen up. Uh, Abraham and, and Sarah have been fruitful and multiplied. And the nation has grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. And, and now at the place where the, the, the Hebrew or the Israelite people live in the land uh, of Egypt. And they're not, this is a place, there are foreigners in the land. And because of their incredible multiplication, there's probably two to three million of them now, uh, they become a threat to the Egyptians. And so the Egyptians decide to put them into slavery. And, they're, and, they, and they put them under slavery. And so they become so populous and they've grown so much that the Pharaoh at that time decides, hey, i got to kind of slow down this process because if something happens and somebody else kind of comes in and wants to take over the nation, guess what's going to happen? The, the Israelites, the Hebrews, or what they're going to do is that they're going to join forces with them and be a you know powerful force against me. So he decides what we'll do is we will kill the firstborn of every of uh, of every uh, uh, household of the Hebrew household. Now I don't understand that because it, I, I understand this. I, I was thinking about this. Maybe it's my brain was weird this week, but um, you know why kill the guys? Do any of you guys ever had a baby? No, no. I mean, you, you help do that, but but uh, but it's the women that have babies. So I don't know how. I, if you're going to slow down the population, it makes sense to me to do it the other way. But you know, the, the favor wasn't very sensible. But anyway, he decides to kill all the firstborn males. Guess what? Moses was all the male babies. He decides to kill all the male babies there that are born under a certain age. Not just firstborn, but male babies under a certain age there. And so he decides to do that. And so, in a sense, Moses should have never even been alive. But God chooses this guy to be a person who leads his people out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, into the, into the promised land. Now, the interesting story, and we read it, and I won't read all of this, but I think you probably know some of it, even if you didn't go, grow up in church, is that Moses, when he's born, his mom places him in a basket. Because of this, uh, in a basket, and she hides him in the river. Now, I don't know how that works with a baby. You know, most babies, you know, most of them must have been really quiet child, all I can say. If you put a baby in a basket in a river and keep him quiet, I don't know what the deal is. But uh, I want to want her secret. And uh, so she did this. And for a while and period of time there, she's able to hide the, hide the baby Moses in this river. But eventually, as we know the story and read it in Scripture, what happens is, is Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river and finds this basket in the river, takes it out of the river, has one of her servants take it out of the river, uh, falls in love with the baby, kind of like, long story short. Uh, and what happens is actually Moses is raised in the household of Pharaoh by the Pharaoh's daughter. Kind of interesting story there. A guy who should have been killed, who should have died because he was born, born as, as an Israelite, as a Hebrew, is now living in the household of Pharaoh. I'm wondering if, if the Pharaoh's daughter came to him and does like so many of our daughters do, just kind of batted her big, big brown eyes and got what she wanted. Daddy, please, can I have the baby? You know? I mean, really, think about it. You know, probably what happened. Uh, and he's probably thinking, well, you know, this one little Hebrew child is not going to make a big difference, is it? Little did he know. Because he only saw the lower story. He didn't see the upper story, what God was doing in a real sense. And so we read here that he grew up in Egypt where Pharaoh ordered all the Hebrews boys to be killed. But by his mother's ingenuity and God's sovereignty, he survived. Um, and we read in Exodus 2, 3, this, this is the story we talked about already. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among her reeds along the bank of the Nile. And the rest of the story goes on. 
Now, he grows up in the household. Long story. I'm going to be glossing over a lot of the story. So you go back and, and read this or watch the Ten Commandments. Okay? One of the two. Both, both and. Okay? But the issue is, is that he grew up in the household. But some way he knew. I guess she told him that, yeah, you really are not Egyptian. You are Israeli. You're Israeli. You're, you're, you're Hebrew. And so he grows up. He understands his Jewish roots. And eventually he ends up... Um, what he does, he goes out and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster later on in life beating one of his Hebrew people. And he's so incensed that he kills him. And he thinks that no one sees him do this. But then we read in Scripture that the next day that he saw that somebody he, uh, somebody spoke to him and he realized it happened. And it says in Exodus 2.15, Pharaoh heard about him killing this guy. And it says, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. He went to live in Midian. The first basically probably, we guess, about 40 years of his life, he lives in Egypt. And he lives there, grows up in the Pharaoh's household, lives as an Egyptian. But then this, this event happens and he flees to Midian. And so he lives in Midian for the next 40 years of his life. When he flees there, uh, he, he runs into a, a person named Jethro. And this is not the guy from uh, Mayberry, but... Uh, or, or I don't know, not Mayberry. Hillbillies, that's it, Beverly Hillbillies, okay? It's not that one, okay? This is a different Jethro. Thank you, guys are sharp this morning. Uh, and I need, need some help, okay? Um, but he, but he, um, he does that, he goes there, he runs into to his daughters, he helps them, and he ends up marrying one of them. And what happens there in Midian is he lives there the next 40 years as a shepherd. Here's a guy that grew up in one, one, one place in, in, a, in a palace. He, now he lives as a shepherd for 40 years in a different place. And while he's there, God is working on in his life. And he's preparing him for something he's about to do. And eventually, one of the most strange, probably one of the most strange things that ever happens in all of Scripture is, well, there's a lot of strange things that sometimes are hard to explain. But God begins to work in his life and to lead him in a direction because all during this time back in Egypt, the Hebrew people are being still abused and they're still under this yoke of slavery and things are not going well and they're crying out to God. And God's not have, doesn't have a deaf ear, but he ha, he understands and what he does is he, he says, I hear them. And so what we see in chapter three of Exodus is the episode of Moses and the burning bush. That Moses, as he's out and he's doing his shepherd thing and he's going to going about, he hear, sees this bush that's burning. But it's not being consumed. You know, it's not a big deal for a bush to burn, but not be consumed. It just keeps burning. And as it's burning, he decides to go over and check it out. And when he goes over to check it out, what happens, it says in Scripture, is that what happens is that God speaks to him through the bush, an audible voice. And he begins to tell him, I've I've heard of what's happening with your people back in Egypt. I've heard their cry. And I guess what? I'm going to do something about it. And at that point, Moses would have said, yeah, that's great. God, it's about time. I don't know if he said that. But after all these years, he probably was thinking that. But Moses didn't have no clue about the plan that God was had in store for him because just right away, and, and it says this in, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. And Moses loves this plan that God's going to do something about it until verse 10. He says, so now, Moses, go. 
I am sending who? You. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, remember why he left Egypt to start with? He was running for his life. He had killed someone. He was not, he was probably, you know, on the top 10 wanted list of the FBI of Egypt. You know, he probably had his picture in all the post offices, even all these years later. He was that kind of guy. And here it is, God says, oh, yeah, I'm going to do something about the problem back in Egypt with all the Hebrews. But what it is, is I'm going to use you, so now you get ready to go back. And it says in Scripture that Moses was elated. No, it doesn't say that. It says he was terrified. You know, we think that when somebody is going to be a great leader to lead the people to deliverance, that they have to be a person that's going to be this bold leader. You know, we think in our society, don't we think when we think of leaders, we think of people who get up in front of people and, and can, and can motivate them to do things and, you know, can, you know, we think of politicians or generals or think people like that who can, but this is not who God chose once again. He chose, chooses a guy who has run from this location, now has been a shepherd out for a long time, but God decides to use him anyway. Moses responds with self-doubt, with insecurity. He tries to convince God that he's got the wrong guy. If you read through the, the next few verses there, I mean, I cannot tell you how many excuses that Moses makes about why he is not the guy. I mean, most of you, if you're going to go in, go in for a job, what do you try to do? You kind of convince them that you are the guy or the, or the gal, you know? But no, Moses is trying to do the reverse. He's trying saying, God, no, this, I am not the guy. I am not the guy. I can't, I, this, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. He just gives excuse after excuse after excuse. It's kind of like sometimes how we do when God ask us to do something, and we're constantly saying, and I've heard this a thousand times, and I've said it myself. I'll just be honest with you. Many times, God, I'm not the man. I'm not the guy. I don't have this ability. I don't have that ability. I shared with you a couple, last week, two weeks ago, nobody believed me, that when I was, you know, 19, 20 years old, I was the shyest, quietest, you know, most insecure person on the face of the earth, really. And to be thinking I'm doing this today, it's just unreal. But the issue is, is that, you know, this is what was happening. God, throughout the Bible, in the big picture, takes people that are unlikely time and time. Again, this is some of the excuses in, in Exodus 4, verse 10. It says, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since have you spoken. You have spoken to your servant. I am slow speech and tongue. Now, I don't know if he, what that means. He's basically saying, hey, I can't, I'm not a public speaker. This is a big deal. You know what the two top fears of people are? Number two is what? Death. People have this incredible fear of death. You know what number one is? What I'm doing right now. Public speaking. Public speaking. So really, I remember Jerry Seinfeld one time said, most people would rather be the person in the casket than the person giving the eulogy. It's kind of weird. But that's how much fear we have of this. And so this is a natural thing, even for, um, this is not just an American fear. This is a person fear of getting up in front of people and doing stuff like this. And so, so Moses is saying, that he, I'm not so sure if he's saying I have this problem or, or if I have a speech impediment or what the deal is. But obviously he said this is the problem. 
And then God says to him in the next verse, he says, The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. Get up and go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. (laughs) That's not enough, though. So Moses responds, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send somebody else. (laughs) This is the great leader that God's going to use to deliver his people and lead us two to three million people out of bondage. This is the guy. I don't want to go. Please send somebody else. And as God, you know, God, you know, you could have said, some of us will think, well, that's great because Moses was so humble. It's not that way God took it because God knows the heart. Because a few verses later in verse 14, it says this, after he responded that way, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. You know why? Because Moses was self-focused. He's going like, I, I, he's saying, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. It's not basing his trust upon, you know, God enabling to do something. This is, this is the, the, the fact. This is the next slide. God will never ask you to do something without enabling you to do it. God will never ask you to do something without enabling you to do it. Now put that on your refrigerator and say that every day. If God asks me to do it, he will enable me to do it. That's what he's saying. That's what God has just said to Moses. He says, Moses says, I will teach you. I will give you whatever you need. Just trust me. That is something we need to learn all the time. I mean, so often we look at what God says for us, do this, do this. And we look at God's word and we're going, I just can't do that. And God says, trust me. And to make a long story short, even in spite of his fears... In spite of his insecurities, guess what Moses does? He goes. He takes his family. He heads to Egypt. He goes back to the place where he was a wanted man. And he goes, and as he goes there, you know, he knows it's not going to be easy because once again, what are the Egyptian or what are the Egyptian people using the Hebrews as? As slaves. That's free labor. And he says, you know, he's. And he has all these things. What's going to happen when I go there? And so when he goes there, what happens is, and we can read this in scripture. When he goes there, he encounters his half brother who has now become the Pharaoh during this period of time. The guy he grew up with in the, in the, in the Pharaoh. A Pharaoh is another word for king in the court. He's now become king. And I'm not really sure what kind of relationship they had. <laughs> But I'm sure it wasn't great because, you know, when he left town years ago, Moses did. Uh, he was a wanted man. And so he goes back and he basically says this. He goes and has an encounter with the Pharaoh. He, he goes in there and, he, and first of all, he's not killed right away, which is an, a miracle. But secondly, he goes in and he says, simply says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Let my people go. And right before this, actually, Moses and Aaron, his brother, who is kind of like a helper as well, and actually a spokesman for him because of his problem with his speaking, um, what happens is they go before the, the Hebrew leaders and they say, hey, God has told me this. And they were all excited about him going to Pharaoh. Because they're thinking, oh, finally, God's going to do something. But when he goes to Pharaoh and says, the first time let my people go, what does Pharaoh do? Yeah, sure, go. Just, just head out of town. No, no. 
He makes it twice as hard on, on the slaves because he says, now you've got to continue to make the bricks and all those things you're making, but I'm not going to give you any straw. I don't know exactly how bricks are made then, but obviously straw was a big component of the bricks. And so he says, you have to gather your own straw and still make the same quota of bricks. And it became such a burden to the people that they became, became angry at Moses. And Moses is going, I know I should have taken this job. But as we read the story and continue to read on through the remainder of the next few chapters of Exodus, and I just want to go through these quickly this morning, we see that we, we know about how what God did is how he finally allowed his people to be released. First of all, he starts the plagues, the ten plagues. And we read about all the plagues in, in the next several chapters, chapters of Exodus. We read about uh, the plagues that begin with the plague of blood in chapter 7, the plague of frogs in chapter 8, the plague of, of gnats, the plague of flies, the plague on the livestock, the plague of boils, the plague of hail, the plague of locusts. I mean, it was like really fun time to be in Egypt at that time. And, you know, and every time that this would happen, Moses would go back and said, let my people go. And a couple of times it acted like Pharaoh said, oh, sure. And then he would change his mind. And he would keep turning around. And finally... Finally, at the ninth plague, basically what happens is, is that, is that Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, this is going to happen and this has happened. Let my people go. And he says, if I ever see you again, I will kill you. And when he does that, Moses says, that's fine, but I want to let you know there's just one more thing that's going to happen. One more thing that's going to happen and God is going to, and then you'll let my people go. God's people go. And that's going to be what's called the plague of the firstborn. And he said, what's going to happen on this night? The firstborn son of every family in Egypt is going to die. And then he says, you will know who God is. That my God is powerful. It says it in Exodus chapter 11. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt, but every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who sits at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. I mean, not even going to kill, not just people, but cattle, everything. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there were, there, there's ever been or will ever be again. Then you will know that the Lord makes the distinction between Egypt and in Israel, let me ask you a question. Let me ask. Let's, let's do something this morning just to see how many of this, how this would affect this crowd. How many of you are firstborn sons? Stand up. Don't sit there. Get stand up this morning, okay? Stand up. Everybody's a firstborn son. I'm standing with you. I'm a firstborn son, okay? You, you could imagine the effect it would have. Stay, remain standing. Look around. The effect it would have if everyone, everybody here that's standing would die tonight. You think it would affect us? I know it affect me. You sit down. Thank you. I thought about that. I wouldn't have, I only have one son. My dad is a firstborn. I'm a firstborn. You know, it was a big deal. It would affect in, in, in a tremendous ways what was going on. And finally, we see that read in scripture that Pharaoh gets the message. God is serious about this. And God delivers Israel. He delivers Israel. After the final plague, Pharaoh allows Moses to lead the Israelites to freedom. 
But it's very clear. That, this is the thing about it. It was very clear that the deliverance was not Moses' doing. It was God. God gets the glory. And if the plagues weren't enough to show God's involvement in delivering Israel, God soon gives another display of his power because soon after that, after they had left for a period, I don't know, a few days or a few weeks or whatever, Pharaoh changes his mind. And he pursues the departing free labor force. And he probably doesn't have a whole lot of problem convincing the other soldiers to go with them because a lot of them had lost firstborn and they were probably angry. They're ticked. And so they take off across the desert to go toward and to, to kill the, the, uh, the Hebrews. And as we read in scripture, it seems that, that the, the Egyptians have them cornered because they're, it's in a place where they're, there's, they're, there's only the Red Sea in front of them and then there's land on both sides and they're hemmed in and here's the, this huge army coming that way. And here's an untrained bunch of people who have been slaves for, for 400 years. But the most incredible thing, probably the, uh, you know, and that's the thing I remember in the Ten Commandments movie, the most incredible, even back in 56 when they did, made the movie originally, the most incredible special effect is to think about how would the, the sea party. Because God's, uh, God says to Moses, hold up your staff. The sea will part. Your people can walk through it. And as they go through it, and they run through it, I don't, they probably didn't walk. I think they ran. Because the Egyptians are right behind them. And the Bible says clearly what happened after the Hebrews walked on through it and got through. The Egyptians were pursuing them. They're in the midst of that sea that's opened up on both sides. It says that the sea closed back upon them and killed everyone. There was not one left alive. See, God proves himself once again. He delivers his people. He, he delivers them from their fears, from their, all the problems they're having. God uses someone who's unqualified, who doesn't feel qualified, someone who is bound by his fears. And when I think about this, you know what I think about? I think this is exactly what he wants to do for us. He wants us to be unleashed from our fears. I don't know what your fears are. I know what mine are. There's insecurity sometimes. There's doubt. There's... Oh, God, you, didn't, you don't want me to do that, really? Sometimes it's just a fear of doing things that are different, of change. See, he wants to deliver us from whatever is holding us back. That's what he did for the people then. He did it for Moses. He did it for, for Joseph. He did it for Abraham. I think that's the biggest lesson I can learn from this story. That we can learn. God wants to deliver us. He, 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 he can do it. Because if he could deliver, you know, two to three million Hebrew slaves from Egyptian taskmasters with a guy leading them who is totally afraid, what can he do for us? What can he do through us? Before we leave uh, this past and the story, I just want us to conclude by looking back for a moment because I didn't talk about the, the thing that spared the Israelites the Hebrews, from having their own firstborn children to die on the night of the 10th plague. And it's a significant event that's celebrated in every Jewish household every year. It's called the Passover. Because Moses was told and given instructions, he says, okay, this is going to happen to all the Egyptians, but let me tell you how you're going to protect, how God is going to protect the household. He said, what you're going to do 
is you're to take a spotless lamb, the perfect lamb that you have, and you're to slaughter the lamb, and you're to take the blood of that lamb, and you're to smear it on the sides and the top of the doorpost around the outside of your door. And he gave some other instructions that we're not going into today about that, what to do with everything else. But he said, in doing so, when the death angel comes across and takes the lives of all the children, the firstborn sons, any household that has this on their door, doorpost will be saved. It's called, the, the death angel will pass over that, that house. And you know, you would go all the way fast forward into the New Testament. In the meal that, that the disciples and Jesus ate the night that he was to, the night before he was to be taken to the cross, they were celebrating the Passover. Uh, it was that same Passover meal that Jesus was eating with his disciples the night he was betrayed. And Jesus was bridging the gap between God's deliverance of Israel and God's deliverance of all people through his blood. And, and so we, when we read in Scripture in Luke 22, it says this, the day came, they came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And that was the beginning As they ate the meal in the upper room, they were celebrating this Passover, this shedding of blood, of remembering what God did to protect and to cleanse and to protect his people. And then it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, something very interesting to kind of give us a parallel. It says, for Christ, the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. It says that Jesus Christ is for us what that lamb stood for. In the Old Testament at the Passover. I mean, how are you and I made right with God? How are we saved from God's wrath, from his judgment, through the blood of the Lamb? The Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, it says in Scripture that what he did is he took the elements that they normally would take at that meal, and he took and passed it out among his disciples, and he said, I want you to do this, and as you do this, what you do is you do this in remembrance of me, of the things I've done for you. And so this morning, what we're going to do as we conclude the service this morning is we're going to have to celebrate together communion. We're going to talk about it and we're going to take the elements, the, the unleavened bread. And they took the unleavened bread because they didn't want to spend the time to let the bread rise so they can run out the door and be ready to, to, to leave. That was one of the reasons they had unleavened bread. There's a whole lot of, of, of things that go on there. And, and they took the, uh, and he took a, just a cup, a common cup, and, and he, he said, you know, this is my blood which is shed for you. And he, it's symbolic of being the Passover lamb for them as well. And so he said, as you do this, You do this to remember what I've done for you. But it goes all the way back, all the way back to what God did for the Hebrew people. That same symbolism, that same, this is what God does and only God can do it. So this morning as we close our service together this morning, I'm going to ask our ushers to come on forward this time. And I'm going to pray over the elements, and we're going to have the band come out, and they're going to, they're going to uh, just play a song, and, and, and we're going to take the elements. As we pass them out this morning, first the bread. Uh, I will ask, we've got them all passed out. I'll give you instructions about taking the bread, and then we'll do the same, same thing with the cup.
And uh, then we'll conclude our service this morning and just go out and celebrate what God's doing in our lives. Let's just pray right now. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakcc.org.